0: Good morning everyone. Welcome to Grace Fellowship Church. If this is your first time here, we're really glad to have you. Thanks for visiting with us. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for the church. And before entering full-time ministry, my first love was music. It began for real in the fourth grade. It was love at first sight. I started playing the trombone and it was so important to me that by the sixth grade, my parents made me decide between music and Little League, both of which I loved, and I quit Little League in order to continue with music uh, so I could keep playing. I got quite serious about music in high school, uh, so serious that my freshman year in high school, I made uh, the county band, which few freshmen made in our county. My sophomore year, I made our district band band, which was a bigger thing, few sophomores could make that. By my senior year in high school, I made the Pennsylvania All-State Orchestra. I was one of four high school trombonists in the whole state that got to play in this orchestra, and because of that, I also got to play in a concert with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra and a 1,000-voice choir. It was pretty amazing, Uh, it was a lot of fun. I went on to major in music in college, where we had endless rehearsals, practicing, lessons, ensembles, all working up to the big climax. Each thing gave me a little more experience, took me a step closer to my big break, which came almost exactly 15 years ago. It was April 11th, 1999. Just a few weeks before my graduation from college, I still have a memento. The poster from the Bucknell University, where I attended the Bucknell Symphonic Band Spring Concert. You might be able to see on here, William Kenny Conductor. Peter Kroll, class of 99, trombone soloist and guest conductor. This was the, the real deal for me. This was the show to end all shows for me. This was the highlight of my musical career. All my rehearsals, all my practicing, every concert I had done each step of the way built up to this grand climax. It's hard to overstate how important this day was to me. I got to play an entire trombone concerto by Rimsky-Korsakov with the 50-piece symphonic band at my back in one of the most beautiful concert halls at, at almost any university. It's, the Bucknell Concert Hall is amazing. I invited all of my friends, all my friends from college, from home, from camps I had been to. I hosted a picnic afterward to celebrate it. This was the main event. This was what I had building up to my entire life. Today is Easter Sunday. And we are here today because of what is truly the most important event in human history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for our salvation. And it's important to know that the resurrection of Jesus was not just a dress rehearsal. It was not just another performance on the way to greatness. That was the main stage. Now, we've been studying John's account of Jesus' life The Gospel of John. So this morning we're going to look at John's account of Jesus' death and resurrection. Starting at the end of John 19. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 589. And I just want you to know that today I'm not going to give a full explanation of this passage. We're going to come back to it again in a few weeks in the course of our study of John. But this morning I wanted to, to jump here because I want to show you one thing. About Jesus' resurrection. And it's that Jesus' resurrection is not just a dress rehearsal. It's not one of the little things leading up to the main thing. Jesus' resurrection is the main thing. It's not a warm-up, or a practice session, or an audition. And if you don't get the music analogies, that's okay. It's not a tryout. It's not a team practice. It's not a qualifying heat. You still don't get what I'm talking about. It's not a midterm. It's not a summer job. It's not an internship. The resurrection is the real deal. It's the climax. It's the main event we've been waiting for. It's the main thing that God planned from eternity past. It's the main thing that God intended in order to restore humanity to himself. And this is the main thing that we will sing about and reflect upon for the rest of infinity. This is the main stage. This is the Super Bowl. This is the big break. This is everything we've been waiting for and everything we could ever need. Friends, if the resurrection of Jesus is not true, then we are all wasting our time. There is absolutely no point to being religious unless God can give life to the dead. And children, this is why we meet every week. This is why we sing to Jesus. This is why we talk so much about loving God and obeying your parents. It's because Jesus rose that God can raise you from the dead. He can rescue you from your sins. He really can. In the resurrection, we see the climax of three major themes in the Bible. This is how I want to show you. It's not just a dress rehearsal. It's the main stage in these three ways that you can see in your outline. In the resurrection, we see the climax of God's presence, God's mercy, and man's perfection. The whole Bible lays the groundwork for these ideas, but all of the rehearsals build up to this one grand performance jesus's resurrection from the dead let's pray father we pray that you would please bless us now as we look into your word and as we see jesus's resurrection please help us to see the life and glory you have in store for us please raise us from the dead resurrect us out of our sin to new life in you we pray lord that you would speak to us now through your word that we might love Jesus more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read from John 19, starting at verse 40. And out of respect for the very word of God here on the main stage of human history, would you please join me in standing out of reverence for the word? John 19, verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus And bounded in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Please be seated. Friends, Jesus' resurrection is what makes God's presence with us possible. This is the first theme. Jesus' resurrection makes God's presence possible. Let me show you how. To show you, I'm going to go back to the beginning. In Genesis 1, page 1 of the Bible, God creates the world. He makes everything. And at the end, as the climax of his creation, he makes men and women in his image. He wants them to rule and subdue all creation in his name for his honor. And so as we read into Genesis 3... They fail to do it. They actually choose to listen to the word of Satan instead of the word of God. They disobey God who told them not to eat the fruit of a certain tree. And they eat that fruit. And God must kick them out of paradise. And he does it for their own good. It's so that they won't be destroyed. Here's what he says in Genesis chapter 3. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's an angel, with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, God has to push them away from him because of their choice, because of their sin against God. Later, God gives his people a picture of what was lost. In the time of Moses, God rescues the nation out of their slavery in Egypt to be a new nation. And as they are living in tents in the wilderness, God wants them to build a tent for him so that he can be with his people. His presence can be among them in the middle of their camp. So they make a tent for him, a big tent, a pretty tent. And at the heart of the tent, in the inside of it, in the most private room, there's one piece of furniture. I tell my kids, this is God's toy box, just like they have a toy box in their bedroom. God had a toy box. It's just a box, this wooden box. It's overlaid with gold. It's pretty fancy. But God put his most precious treasures in that box, the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, symbol of his authority, and a jar of manna, the bread that had fallen from heaven for his people in the wilderness. And this box has a lid on it. And the Bible calls, has a name for this lid. It calls the name of this lid the mercy seat. Let me read this to you. Exodus 25. If you'd like to follow, it's on page 43 of the church Bible. Page 43. Exodus 25, starting at verse 17. This is God talking to Moses. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit was their measurement, was the distance from the elbow to the tip of your fingers about a foot and a half long. So two cubits, about three feet long. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, two angels, statues of angels of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You see, God lives there. This is God's private room in his tent. And he says, there I will meet with you. There I will speak with you from above these two cherubim, the one on the one side of the mercy seat and the one on the other side of the mercy seat. And then later, in Leviticus chapter 16, I won't read from this one, but you can look it up later if you want. There is an annual ritual established called the Day of Atonement. This was the one time each year when somebody, a human, was allowed into that room, God's private room with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And uh, the Jews today still celebrate this day. Do you know what it's called? The Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur. Have you ever heard of that? you seen it on your calendar? It takes place in the fall every year. This coming year, it's on October 3rd to the 4th. They celebrate it sundown to sundown. October 3rd and 4th. And But what it is in the scripture is that on one day, there was one man who had to be a Levite, who had to be a priest. Actually, he had to be the high priest. This person would get to go in and be with God once per year. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, was so holy that he could only go in there once a year for a special ritual to Make atonement for the people. And this ark, this mercy seat was so holy, so important to God that ordinary people weren't even allowed to look at it. Listen to this in Numbers chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is where God is giving the people instructions for what to do when it's time to move camp from one location to another through the wilderness, and they have to pack up God's tent and get ready to move it. In Numbers 4, verse 5, he says this, When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons, these are the high priests, they shall go in and take down the veil of the screen. This is the curtain that protected off that inner room so no one could see. They are to take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on top of that a cloth olive blue and shall put in its poles. And then they can carry it. See, whenever you see pictures of in picture Bibles of the Jews carrying around the Ark of the Covenant on poles, it's not true because when they carried it, they had to have it draped so that people couldn't even see it. This is what a big deal it is. What is the whole point? You see, God wants his people to be close to him, but not too close. There needs to be a distance lest they die because of their sin. But what happens when Jesus is resurrected? Back to John 20. Let me remind you of what I read. John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, She stooped to look into the tomb, and what did she see? She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Do you get what she's seeing? Any Jew in the first century reading this is saying, she is in the holy of holies. She is looking at what the Ark of the Covenant was a picture of. She is in the inner sanctum that no one is allowed to go into unless you are a man, unless you are a Levite, unless you are a priest, unless you are the high priest, unless you are in the tent, the right place, unless it is on that one day in the fall, the Day of Atonement. Here it is. She's a woman. It's the spring. And there is the presence of God, the inner room of God, where Jesus had lain. The point is this, that everybody is now granted free access to God's most intimate presence. How does this apply? Friends, because Jesus rose from the dead, you can get close to God. Any person of any gender... Of any race, of any age, in any place, at any time, on any day. You're not any closer to God on Easter than another day. But know this, that if you try to come close to God by yourself, you will be incinerated. But if you come to God with Jesus, through Jesus, because of Jesus who rose from the grave on your behalf, then when you face God's angels, they do not have a sword ready to hack your head from its shoulders. Instead, they have a question for you. Woman, man, child, friend, why are you weeping? They are not against you. They are now for you. There are three implications of this truth. At least three. I'll give you three. First, if God is with you, your sins will never be held against you. If God is with you, your sins will never be held against you. Because Jesus paid your debt to God, your sins will never be held against you. Your closest friend will always remember the time you betrayed her. But your Father God says, it's finished. It's done. Your sins have been cast into the depths of the sea, never to rear their ugly head again. If God is with you, your sins will never be held against you. Second implication. If God is with you, nothing can separate you from his love. If God is with you, nothing can separate you from his love. God did not spare his own son. Won't he freely give you all good things? If God is with you, nothing can separate you from his love. Third implication, if God is with you, who can possibly stand against you? Who can possibly stand against you? People can damage your reputation and steal your possessions. They can demote you, deport you, defame you, or detain you. People can malign you, they can mangle you, they can molest you, they can murder you, but none of it will affect your connection with the only God and Lord. When people mess with you, they're really messing with him. And when it comes to picking off the bad guys, our Father in heaven is a crack shot. Listen to this story I heard from David Platt about a a pastor and church planter in Romania named Joseph Stone. This truth, that God was with him, got him through hard times of persecution. He was beat, was treated unjustly, but here's what it looks like to know, without a doubt, that God is close by, God is with you. Access has been granted. One time he was being beaten by six interrogators, and he said, what's taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me because my God is right here with me. The interrogators looked puzzled and Stone said, my God is teaching me a lesson here. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will only do to me what God wants you to do. And you will not go an inch further because you are only an instrument of my Lord. And Stone said, every day I saw those six pompous interrogators as nothing more than my father's puppets. During an early interrogation, I told an officer who was threatening to kill me, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons and tapes have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up again and say, I'd better listen again to what this man had to preach because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory, if You kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. (laughs) Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, We know that Mr. Stone would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. This is what it means for God to be with you. And because Jesus raised from the dead, it makes God's presence Possible. The resurrection is not just a dress rehearsal. This is the real thing. The second theme that we see is God's mercy. Jesus' resurrection is what makes God's mercy possible. Without it, without the resurrection, there would be no mercy. And let me show you how. I already told you about Leviticus 16, that ritual of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year when the high priest could go in and what would happen to make atonement possible. Atonement is a fancy word that simply means to make satisfaction for something by covering it. You make satisfaction by covering. The priest would have to take two goats and he would take the first goat and kill it and collect its blood, and then he would go into that inner room and sprinkle the blood on the front of the mercy seat. And then he'd go back out of the tent to the second goat, which would be kept alive. He would lay his hands on the head of that goat, confess all the sins of the whole nation, and then they would exile that goat outside their camp out into the wilderness. You see, the point was that for mercy to be offered for the mercy seat To make a difference in their lives, they needed two goats to be their substitutes. And God wanted to teach them that the substitute they needed, mysteriously, had to be both dead and alive. That's why it had to be two goats. One would die and one would live. But both were substitutes. And unless a substitute can both die and stay alive, there would be no covering for sin. And without the covering, there would be no mercy But this ritual, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, that was just a dress rehearsal. That was just a buildup for the main performance. You want to see the real deal? John 19, where we read. John 19, verse 40, says, They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You see, they covered Jesus up in these cloths. But what did he do with those coverings? remember in chapter 20, verse 5. Stooping to look in, Peter, uh, I'm sorry, John, this was the other disciple, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. John makes a big deal out of these cloths. Jesus was wrapped in the cloths, but he left the cloths behind the point is this jesus didn't need to be covered because he never committed a sin he didn't need atonement instead he provides it he leaves the covering behind so that he can give it to others so others can see it and then in verse 13 we already saw when when mary looks into the tomb and she sees the angels who should be wielding fiery swords to keep her out They don't wield swords. They don't breathe fire. They simply ask her, why are you weeping? And in verses 14 and 15, she comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And he doesn't blow her away. He asks her, woman, why are you weeping? He extends mercy. How does this apply? Because Jesus rose from the dead, you can receive God's mercy. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to pay him back. You don't have to come to church on Easter to keep him happy with you. You don't have to forgive yourself before he can forgive you. Many of us are keenly aware of the need to hide when the going gets tough. We need something to cover us. As a child, when the st- my stress level was high, I used to leave my house and I would run across the street behind this candy shop, where there was a little pond next to the railroad tracks behind a graveyard on the other side. And this was my hideout. Nobody else knew about it. Nobody knew I went there. This was my hiding place when things were difficult. Where do you run when you need to hide? When you need covering? When you need protection? When you need mercy, do you run to a bowl of ice cream? Do you run back to work? Do you run to internet porn? Do you run to sports, to television, to the shopping mall? And friends, even if you don't feel the need to hide now, you will someday. Revelation chapter 6 says this, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? If you don't feel like you need to hide now, you will someday. But... If you trust in Jesus If he is your Lord If you know him As the son of God And your only hope Then you can come face to face With him who sits on the throne Who rules all things By the word of his power The one who will blow away his enemies On the last day And he will say to you Woman Man Child Friend Why are you weeping? His mercy is abundant. He offers his mercy to you and to me. Will you trust him with me? Will you hide in him with me? Will you allow him to cover you? Maybe for the first time today. Also, for every day, this week and the next week And the next, Jesus' resurrection makes God's mercy possible. Jesus took on your sin. He suffered for it once. Now it's done. Mercy and covering are freely available. That's the second theme that finds climax here in Jesus' resurrection. It's not a dress rehearsal. This is the real thing. The third theme that finds its climax here is man's perfection. Jesus' resurrection is what makes man's perfection possible. Without the resurrection, there would be only failure, weakness, sin, and misery. Let me show you why. Remember when I mentioned Genesis 1 and 2? God created all things, and the peak of his creation was the man and the woman. God called them his image, his likeness. And in Genesis chapter 2... Look at what God does with this, the man whom he made first. Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, God gave life to this man and moved him into a garden where all pleasing things sprouted. He goes on to give this this man a mission to rule the world in his name under God's gentle and kind rule. But in the next chapter, Genesis 3, they failed. The man And the woman in the garden replaced the creator with created things. They submitted to the snake and not to God. They loved themselves more than God. They wanted to be their own gods. And so sin entered the world through this one man and his decision to disobey God. And as a result, he broke intimacy with his wife. The order of all things was thrown all out of whack and death came to all now in John notice what happens the climax of this 1941 chapter 19 verse 41 look at what John goes out of his way to tell us now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid Now look at chapter 20, verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. You see, in John, we have a man and a woman together in a garden with new life. God is making all things new. And just as Adam was the one to name his wife, woman, and then later, Adam was the one to rename his wife, Eve, mother of the living, so now here in verse 7, pardon me, in verse 16, Jesus says to this woman, Mary. He names her. But you see, while Adam in Genesis, was focused on himself alone. Here in verse 17, look at where Jesus is focused. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus' focus is on nothing but honoring his Father. And at the same time, he is setting up a new family of humanity. He says, go to my brothers. He is not ashamed to call these sinful people his brothers. How does this apply? Because Jesus rose from the dead, humanity can finally reach its potential. Everything we were meant to be when God created us, in Genesis, but we could not do and we failed to do because of Adam's fateful choice to disobey, God has now done all of it for us in Christ. You see, Jesus is fully God. He's the one who brings us God's presence and offers us God's mercy. But at the same time, Jesus is fully man. He is the one who lived righteously before God and did everything we could not do. And because Jesus did everything God requires of us, you don't have to keep trying to earn God's approval. Hard Working hard, day after day, toiling to make the world a better place, going to church, going to church on Easter, going to church every Sunday, or doing your duty before God, trying to make up for all the lost years, paying off your failures with more misery, more guilty feelings, more good works. Now, does God want you to do good works? Absolutely. But not in order to make God happy. He wants you to do them because he's already happy with you in Christ. God could not be any more delighted with you if you trust in Christ. Thus, he is not ashamed to call you his brothers. In conclusion, everything in the Bible Everything in human history has been moving forward to this one event, the resurrection of Jesus. And in the resurrection, everything we need comes to fruition. Everything else was another rehearsal, another minor performance on the way to the big show. And unlike my big day on April 11th, 1999, this big day will never let you down. Because, you know, I have often wished I could relive this day. I've often, often, often wished I could go back to that day and feel again what I felt on that day. Almost every concert I've ever played in has been recorded, and I can listen to those recordings over and over again. But this one, the recording got corrupted, and I've never been able to hear it. But, you know, the resurrection of Jesus will never disappoint us never disappoint us that's why we relive it every easter we can go back to it every year and we can go back to it every day through the year every night i pray with my children thank you jesus for dying so we could have life we praise god for resurrection God wants to change the world with this message. You know, there used to be a dress rehearsal where God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and take over the world in God's name. But now that the real thing is here, there's a new mission with a new message, and it's incredibly simple. It's in John 20, verse 18. It's what Mary says as she goes to the disciples. She says, I have seen the Lord. That's it. Have you seen him? Have you seen the Lord this morning because he's been speaking to you from his word for the last 35 minutes? Will you please open your eyes and see and tell others what you have seen? Because Jesus rose from the dead, death now has no power over you. And if you see him as he is, you will rise with him on the last day, never to die again. Let's pray.